A fox knows many things, but a hedgehog knows one important thing. One important thing. One important thing. Welcome to the Spiritual Hedgehog Podcast, where we explore the role philosophy and faith play in your daily life. Here are your hosts, Sarah Gardner and Pastor Eric Dahl. Welcome to another episode of the Spiritual Hedgehog, and I'm not. Eric, we had planned to talk about some other things, but I think we can't ignore what's going on in the country right now and what's going on right here in Spokane in relation to uh, the George Floyd uh, death in Minneapolis and the Black Lives uh, Matter um, protest and secondary and auxiliary uh, protest uh, and rioting that's uh, happened, I believe, in Spokane for the first time, actually. We had some rioting and, and looting happening. And and so it begs to ask the question of um, what do you think has uh, led to uh, the rise of um, nationalism or racism to kind of show up uh, now and uh, more specifically, what role has Christianity uh, had in the um, sanctioning of uh, racism in America historically? Yeah, well, I think, un- unfortunately, historically, as long, just about as long as Christianity has been around, it's been tied a little bit too much uh, to nationalism. Um, whether you're um, looking at Con- Emperor Constantine or whether you're looking at um, the wars that were happening and the, the um, crusades that were happening that tied, you know, religion into sort of this nationalistic movement to um, the war, you know, the great wars to present day, um, you know, with our current administration. I'm just not going to be shy about that anymore. I think one of the most upsetting things as a pastor was to see our presidents, first of all, disperse a a group in Washington, D.C. and claim not to know anything about it. Um, and, and yet wants to promote this, this position of, of power and, and walk across then and then hold the Bible upside down as a, as a photo op in, in, instead of thinking about what the word of God is. So I think there, there's this whole connection of, of right, uh, of, and right is might. And this idea that, um, for my religion to be true, we must be the most powerful. And if we are the most powerful, then my religion is true. And so it gets wrapped up into a nationalism that, that is really unfortunate and really counterintuitive to, to what Christ is all about. Um, and to, to see that, I think as, as Christians, we need to admit it. We need to look at it deeply and say, if that's what we're tying ourselves to, if we're tying our, our faith to our nationalism, we are totally missing the boat, boat on, at least for me as a, a Lutheran pastor, as a Christian pastor, on what Christ stands for. Um, my mind goes all over the place, Ira. Um, sure, sure. But so you I, will, know, you I will try to kind of get a little more concise right now as I think about that. What about you? I mean, what are what have you been thinking about in, in as as we look at this you know the looting and the different things that are happening the rioting 
also combined with, boy, many, many peaceful protests um, that are going on simultaneously with thousands and thousands of people that are just trying to raise that awareness. Um, well, so I will tell you in our, our local community, I was deeply moved by a press conference that the mayor gave in uh, conjunction with um, community leaders uh, present from the local NAACP chapter was there, the police chief was there. And there was a recognition that the, uh, the primary protest movement um, was peaceful and was a healthy expression of something that needs to be addressed. Yeah. So I was very moved by that. <clears throat> Excuse me. My own uh, personal experience over the past week has been a little bit torn uh, over the fact that um, I really think that we live in a country that doesn't have enough uh, marches and enough expression of opinion uh that and and so i felt torn over the fact that uh due to the covid-19 my own personal fear of being in large groups of people right. due to my underlying medical issues prohibited me from actively participating or even documenting as a photographer i mean some of my uh colleagues have um, shown me some incredible photographs or very poignant uh photographs so for me it was it was troubling not to be able to participate that way um, and then, uh, but on the other hand, I was really moved by the fact that my father, uh, who uh, grew up in what I would consider to be a very um, ultra-conservative religious household that I will, uh, that he will tell you that uh, he describes himself as a recovering racist, uh, he sent me an article that was uh, written by a uh, former WSU uh, football player uh, named Gabe Marks uh, mm. that wrote a very compelling uh, article about how it wasn't enough to not be prejudiced or consider yourself not racist, that now is the time to be anti-racist, to get activated around um, making some structural fundamental changes. Uh, and so... Uh, I was I was thrilled that my father would actually share something like this that really dealt with some uh, um, issues that I think I didn't expect him to respond the way he did because frankly I'll, I'll tell you he voted for Trump uh, and he has since developed a regret over that I think starting with the uh, Chancellor uh, Bill uh, reaction to the the um, protesters being uh, uh, run over uh, in, back in. Uh, uh, Chancellorville. So I was very moved by that. And then in my typical response, I was um, drawn into research. So I was drawn to watch a series, a three-part series of lectures given by Jeffrey Robinson, who is the deputy director of the ACLU legal department that gave a history of racism in America. And the thing that really hit me over the head with that presentation um, was that his definition of racism has three components, uh, one of which is prejudice, mm -hmm. the second is social status, and third is legal authority. And I think the part that was most um, hit home the hardest was the fact that you can be not prejudiced, but you cannot not be 
uh, racist if you are the beneficiary of a system that is uh, that you have social status uh, that you can't help. You, you were born into it, uh, social status and legal power that until those things get uh, modified and balanced out, um, I cannot help but uh, represent the the oppression of, of racism in this country just by virtue of the fact that we haven't done enough to change the system. Yeah, that, and that's right there is probably the most humbling, humbling thing there is, isn't that? It, it's, I've read a number of things lately that have, have been talked, talking about until we are able to understand that we are in places of privilege and until we are willing to give up that privilege, change will not happen. Um, so what I've been taken back, back to a, a couple things, I shared this in one of my homilies was, I remember being just struck starkly. My, I have a friend in college, his name was Wensley Herbert. He's, he's grew, he was born in India, but moved here when he was about three years old. And so, but he had, he had come to Minnesota uh, where I went to college uh, from Colorado and had Colorado license plates and had kind of a dark shade on his cars as he walked, as he drove into Minnesota and he almost immediately got pulled over by the police. And, you know, he had, um, he had a Caucasian friend in, you know, in the car with him on his, on the side and he was pulled out. He was pulled out of the car and examined and given the fifth degree in a way that, that just, wouldn't have happened if it was you or if it was me that got got pulled out of that car and he and I was questioning I said really you know it, it surprised me and it showed my own ignorance but he goes hey, Eric you just don't understand what it is to, you know what kind of fear and so as I've been lis listening to more and more of the news reports and, and the protests watching 60 minutes watching just different interviews about how the place of privilege that we are allowed allows us to keep ignorance about much of what is really happening for people that are in a different position. And so as a person of faith in the midst of that, I think I've been really struck to say, how do I really show that I am standing with different, you know, not, not only black lives that matter, but Hispanic and, you know, um, uh, you, you see a lot of this with China these days, just these di different areas of, of folks, these different groups of folks that are being labeled and the prejudice just carries on. So I'm, I'm curious, but you gave this definition of these three, these three areas. First of all, I would argue I, I learned early on, again, growing up in St. Louis Park, that we are all prejudiced. I, that was ingrained in my head. Just, we all prejudge, you know, just think about who are those, those groups of people that, you know, if you walk in, that you don't feel quite as safe around. And, and why is that? Is it, are you prejudging some things? Or is there good reason? Sometimes there might be. But beyond that, um, that second set thinking looking at that social status how you know how is it i mean can you imagine how 
what those steps might be. And I guess what I want to play with a little bit with you is what those steps might be to look at our social status and what we need to release in order to make others feel more comfortable in the country that they love. Well, it's a tough question. I, I, well, you know, I'm, I'm torn. Um, I, obviously, I'm thinking about, you know, what is it that I can do yeah. um, to be proactive, to combat? Um, I'm thinking about how complex the issue is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm thinking about the fact that, um, you know, I know um, several police officers and deputies, and there's some really fine human beings, my next door neighbor. Uh, and, and so my my initial thought is that this is a problem that belongs to all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I start trying to figure out um, where is the psychological origins of this problem. And, uh, and actually I've, I've got a, a, a list here uh, because it's a complex issue and um, just a, a, a a little bit of review of, of where some of this uh, comes from. Uh, one uh, aspect psychologically is something called social identity theory, which simply says that we all uh, have a strong sense of um, self that is defined by the groups that we belong to. And we divide the world into an us and them. Uh, and at the most basic level um, you know, we can, we can divide by culture, we can divide by ethnicity, we can divide by economic status, uh, we can divide by sports team. Uh, you know, uh, and I've talked about the, the, the us of motorcycle riders and the them of car drivers, uh, and I've experienced that social identity. Uh, and so what happens uh, with the social identity th- uh, theory is that we always see the other in a derogatory less than status uh, because we're trying to protect our own sense of, uh, of identity. And the other major component of that is the inability to see the individual. And so social identity theory really raises the, the moniker of stereotype vision of the world that we see them as, uh, and we actually heard our president say that uh, about, uh, he's used this kind of, uh, code word for white nationalism by describing well people on both sides uh, uh, but those people uh, and, he, and he's referred to for example um, the football players that want to kneel during the Star Spangled Banner uh, and yet if you look at the history of racism you look at the actual history of the Star Spangled Banner and look at the third verse um, you know that we've we have institutionalized a um, a, a poem, a song that is founded in racism. Uh, so social identity theory is one. Another one I find really interesting is this compensation theory that says that if I do something good, it gives me permission to do something naughty. Uh, like if I go exercise 15 minutes on a treadmill, I can eat that uh, chocolate cake. Uh, and at a uh, social level, it's more the case of um, we can give ourselves permission, if you will, to um, gravitate towards these racist, stereotypical viewpoints of the world, uh, because we can say, "Well, I, you know, I, we elected uh, Obama, so therefore I'm not racist, uh, or we're not a racist country." But then we get this kind of boomerang effect that says, "Well, now that he's out of office, we get to go back to uh, things as as they were." 
And there's another factor, social proof theory, which basically says if we don't know how to behave, and this is our children, by the way, this is our children. If we don't know how to behave, we look for examples in leaders, in popular, important people, and how they behave affects, it, it, it makes it okay to behave. And so when you see uh, church leaders, when you see uh, political leaders, uh, or you see uh, uh, musicians with song lyrics acting in a, in a very negative way, it gives permission, uh, it says, oh, well, this is okay. And so you have people that are maybe on the fence that end up going along to get along, so to speak. And then finally, and probably the most important one of the whole uh, list of them, and I think it's a combination of all of it, is this idea of moral licensing. And this gets back to where I think Christianity has a, a problem. And this moral licensing is this theory that says people that perceive themselves as righteous and good people are more likely to commit unholy, unrighteous behaviors. It's kind of like, you know, the uh, how many scandals have we seen of, uh, of people that are just these, you know, bastions of, of righteousness that end up having some serious um, dark secrets. And so this idea of moral licensing is that um, if we see ourselves as being good, we're literally giving ourselves to be uh, behave in, in, in negative formats, uh, negative manners. Uh, and that's the one that I think that we're really struggling with right now. Where, Ira, where do you think fear plays a role in all of that? I mean, is it, you look at, I mean, as you kind of the social identity, you know, do you think it's, if, if I allow another individual to be right, then um, does that put me at risk? If, if I allow this group to have equal say, where does this put me at risk? And is, is it a fear? Is it fear driven in some of that? Uh, I, again, I'm, I'm not an expert, um, but my, my hunch is it's a combination of fear and a history of trauma. Uh, Native Americans have this concept of seven generations, that it takes seven generations to wash away the pain of, of a trauma and, uh, and that we pass down uh, trauma and fear that then turns into aggression towards others. I mean, it's a, it's a recurring thing. And so when you think about the formation of the United States, um, you see a country that was formed, uh, the, the founding fathers, um, we didn't have uh, women included in that leadership role. Uh, majority, all but maybe six of the people that signed the Declaration of Independence owned slaves. And so you have this conflict that is deeply seated in our country um, that uh, somehow I think what starts out as maybe a, a fear of not enough resources, a fear of, you know, they're uh, you know, we, we saw this with every immigrant group coming through, by the way, they're taking our jobs, mm -hmm. um, taking our livelihood, they're taking our land. Uh, this sort of fear based upon wanting to be positioned in a superior way 
But then I also see this other fear of letting go to a fear of admitting that we're wrong. And, and I think that's uh, another kind of fear that we have is that we hold on to, maybe we hold on to traditions and we maybe we hold on to things. Um, and again, I'm going to keep going back to Christianity. The fact that so many, if you look up some of the white nationalist churches, they're very much based on a religious platform of dominionism. Uh, and that you see a lot of uh, pulling from the old Testament and you see a lot of this mindset of, yeah. of there is a natural um, uh, divine order to the world that is being carried out. And yet there's a, a complete ignorance of um, really what Jesus was teaching. Right. Well, it's, and I, I guess I would even argue a lot of that, that stuff on dominion. First of all, just taking us back to Genesis, if we think about the two creation stories, um, it's, it's interesting. God, God, you know, created humankind in God's image. Male and female God created them. Okay, so there's there's first this this image that as as you you move forward um, doesn't say God created white uh, white male in in God's image. It's humankind, and 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 it's really an an inclusive piece. And then this the creation story. You know, the word that often gets translated as dominion over. Um, is really that that's not the sense of what Genesis is trying to get at in that creation story. When God gives the birds of the air and, and the, the animals and, and the plants and, and the sea creatures and all those things, the, the idea is that humankind was created to be caretakers that we, we were given. A, and, and so if we move from being a caretaker to someone that is having dominion over, it becomes very problematic. Well, we know, you know, as you look, unfortunately, the Bible, you know, has been used throughout history. Uh, the word of God, as I would call it, has been used throughout history in, in ways that have been very damaging. What do we do with the fact that, you know, with, with slavery, um, uh, that, you know, there, there's justification in the Old Testament. It was used, you know, through the beginning, uh, halfway through the 1800s, you know, almost into the end of the 1800s to justify slavery because it's there in the Bible. So if it's there in the Bible, it must be okay. Instead of moving and seeing that scripture is moving us in, in a trajectory that says, you know, God, you know, not only did God create humankind, but in Christ, then there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. And to understand that Jesus, Jesus is so radical in his understanding of, 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 of how we twist that, that he, he doesn't even use the word servant. Really, you know, when he calls us and says, you are to be servant of all, the word really is slave. We are called to be slaves to one another, but, but, but that's that individualism of how do we understand that we are called to such an extent to be looking after our neighbor, to be serving our neighbor. And if we all started from that place as individuals, knowing whatever humankind came in our midst, seems to me it would change the way we looked at morality quite a bit. 
So, well, so really you're expressing the fact that a servant leadership style is, is what's really being described. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, to be leaders in our community is to uh, be there to serve one another. Um, and you see that, uh, you know, during uh, difficult times. I mean, when, when there's a major storm, when there's, you know, the, the, the outpouring of people willing to, to volunteer, and we've seen that with COVID-19. So I have faith in humanity. Um, there's a part of me that's excited about the fact that some of these things, I mean, with the, the momentum of uh, Me Too and, and Black Lives Matter and um, uh, dealing with um, uh, uh, DACA and immigration rights and the fact that there are people that are willing to uh, stand up and be accounted for, um, I, I, I still have hope. Mm-hmm. But it is a very, very uh, difficult time. To, and, and I think we have to parse through. Um, you know, I, I was just today working with a group of faculty on um, how we assess critical thinking skills. And one of the things we look at is um, if, uh, if somebody is taking things too literally and not able to apply knowledge uh, and deal with the ambiguities uh, of life by uh, being able to assess and solve problems and analyze and I think sometimes the Bible gets used as this literal uh, device to, to pound people over the head with or to create these um, this and us uh, narratives um, and, and that we're missing the whole point. Yeah, that's well, one of it's it's interesting, and I have these conversations with my parishioners all the time. Of you know, what, what, why, what brought you back to church, right? And it's 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 often um, what brings them back to church is when they have kids, and 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 it's a moral thing, right? For for so many, it's not it's not a spiritual faith thing. It's this moral thing that I have a responsibility teach my kids what's right and wrong and religion should do that. The problem is, is that, that, that idea of, of just coming up with what's right and wrong wasn't really the purpose of Christianity. The old Testament, the old Testament is, is trying to understand who God is and where God is leading. And yes, you, you're going to get the Ten Commandments, but that's, that's an order. How do we keep order in society, a healthy order in society? And then Christ moves us, and, and you look at, again, when does Jesus get really angry? I think I've said this before. When Jesus gets really angry at those who seem to be certain about their righteousness, about um, that, that they know the right way. And so what makes the Pharisees and Sadducees and some of the Jewish leaders really upset are those who, you know, are following those 360 whatever number of laws there are, and they're doing it very well. And then Jesus, and they're talking about being the chosen people. And then Jesus says, well, who, you know, who does God come to? But the widow of Zarephath, who's this outsider during a time of plague, um, who, who does God 
come to. It's um, but but Naaman, uh, who's healed from his skin disease, again a, a leader of a, a, a great army, army that's not the insiders, and and they get so upset that they try to throw Jesus off the cliff, you know, and. I want to be careful there because it's just one instance. You can look at any world religion and you can see the same thing that happens that, that immediately, you know, back to some of your original points is, is we start to focus and, and want to surround ourselves and we get the social identity of what's happening. And we, we want to be able to identify and be confident in our identity but without, as you're talking about, you know, without some critical thinking to start to, to see people as individuals, to, to parse out our education, without some critical thinking ideas, and if we get locked into this, um, this is what the, you know, how many times have you heard this said? It's what the Bible says, and if the Bible says it, I believe it, and if I believe it, I'm going to presume, you know, it's it's got to be true, instead of what question is this trying to answer? And, and where is Jesus trying to, to lead or, or, you know, in a, you know, where's the Buddha trying to lead us in under, a deeper understanding or, you know, where are the prophets trying to push us um, in, in the Jewish faith or what, what was Muhammad trying to, to get at in some of the teachings, you know, where he recognizes things that are, that are of a spiritual nature that are more than, just me getting ahead. We live in this world of scarcity, that there's never going to be enough. There's not enough. And, and I think that drives us to this fear that if, you know, if I don't get mine and if I don't protect mine, then I might lose. Um, instead of look at this world God has given us and it is so abundant and there is more than enough, more than thinking about Walter Brueggemann who who really challenged this idea of scarcity to say that's the whole battle of the exodus is to get the people to understand that God has provided enough there is more than enough so if we take that then if we look at the specific situation you know after the you know killing of George Floyd and after the, the protests and then the looting that, that, that's happening and, and this, this turmoil that, that's happening, I think we, we need to first take a step back, especially as white, you know, you and I are white males that, that have every privilege given to them and have had every privilege given to them. What is it for us? We need to be the ones asking is there a place for looting? Is, you know, and that, that sounds really, I need to ask that. I, I'm not the one that can really challenge in quite the same way um, those looters that, you know, that, that are doing so to try to make a point that corporations are, you know, running the world and that, five, you know, the five big corporations run most of the world. And, you know, you, you, you keep looking at those things. So I want to be careful that we try to bring out the best of faith practices instead of going into those old tapes that, that, that tend to play over and over in our lives. How we best do that in this time 
continues to be the thing I'm, I'm really trying to figure out. Um, well, I think, you know, the, the challenge, yeah, I'm going to go back just a little bit. And I'll just tell you that um, I have a certain lens that I look at uh, world situations or life situations. And one of them is, is that if somebody says they have the exact answer, um, that's somebody I'm, I'm, I'm nervous of uh, because I think answers uh, are always specific to a set of variables and that we have to have a, a philosophical lens that is uh, process-based, value-based, uh, and, and that we need to be open to the subtleties of nuance in, in life. And so I've, I found it very interesting is, is that uh, you will get religious leaders that say, I know the way. Uh, and those are the ones that that righteous indignation that comes along with that leads to this moral licensing um, that I think is problematic as opposed to saying, I know the process for discovering your life journey and what's going to be, be helpful. And so I tend to uh, focus on, on trying to open up to a process mm-hmm. um, and open up to a value system. And I do think that unfortunately um, my, well, so one of the lenses I try to look through is through critical thinking and, and information literacy and, and this idea of we live in a time where we're bombarded with media, but most of that media is designed to promote fear because we know that gets at our, our, our fight or flight, um, uh, the, the, uh, what's the brain, the amphibian brain. Yeah, amygdala. To, yeah, the amygdala, the the the, the amphibian brain yeah. that gets to this action because most media is designed to get you to act, to purchase, to buy, and to do something, and so we're bombarded with media, news, etc. Uh, and yet, the reality is, if you look at an individual at the individual level, there's generally a way to form a bond, a relationship, a bridge that extends beyond those fears. And I think of, again, I go back to the, uh, why travel has always been important to me is people that travel the world will tell you that there are wonderful people in every, uh, every part of the world and that you can't evaluate, uh, a people by their governments or by the news, uh, that you have to be on the ground to meet the people. Uh, one of which we, we have a, you know, one of my very best friends is, is Persian. He's Iranian. And it was interesting to um, hear a story recently about somebody who visited Iran. And, and of course, we have this very antagonistic relationship as a country politically with Iran. And yet um, the culture of Persian culture is one of the most giving, loving cultures you will ever come across. Uh, and you just hear story after story of this, and yet that's not what gets shared in, in the media. And I think uh, what I was so impressed with here in Spokane was some of the photos uh, that actually showed protesters and, and police officers hugging in, in unison. Yeah. And, and that's not the story you're going to hear very often either. Well, right. A couple people, you know, where they were, some people were trying to set American flags and the peaceful protest on fire and the peaceful mm-hmm. protesters were putting them out and said, that's, that's not what we're doing here. And, and there may be a place for that sometimes, but I think it's, it's trying to say what, what's going to get that message out. So 
you you use the word lens. What's the lens? The the um, theological word that I learned was hermeneutic. Um, yes. Yeah. It's the same thing. It's it's. Yeah. What's the hermeneutic um, that that you are using to to first admit that to ourselves? What what is giving us our worldview? What is what is you know propelling us um, in that direction? Um, and so, I've, as I've been listening, a couple things you know, I've, I was really struck listening to you know this movement that's making a lot of people very nervous to defund um, you know the, the police. Yeah. Well, right. Again, if, if, if we do this either or sort of thinking and say, well, right, the fear, the fear base that goes to us is who's going to protect us? Who's going to, you know, protect, you know, those, those vulnerable people. We can't just defund the police instead of saying, you know, what they're getting at is to say, will you help us? We, we, we've tried to make subtle changes in our, you know, in, in, the police uh, department to, to deal with these racism questions and, and it hasn't worked. So how do we defund, defund it in a sense where, you know, suddenly you call 911 and, and uh, homeless instead of the police always being the first line of defense, maybe it's, you know, um, a person that deals with homelessness and, and knows all those connections. Uh, so maybe the 911 call goes to that person, maybe, you know, Medical and social workers. Medical and social workers for for um, mental health issues. Um, you know who's going to get those first those first calls. And so listening to Minneapolis and listening to them to get the first they tried to get the mayor to say will you and the mayor you probably couldn't make the promise yet so walked away. But then they got the council members and I forget it was like eight eight of the council members agreed. Yeah, we will look to defund. Well, I have a nephew who wants to get into the police department in Minneapolis. And he's, I know, been really struggling um, because you get into that thinking you're going to have the support of the community behind you. And I think, like you said, mo you know, your next door neighbor, um, I forget if he's highway patrol or, or what he does. He's county sheriff. County, county sheriff. sheriff. Yeah. And very, I've met him and very good guy and uh, had a number of members of congregations I've served in the past. It's, this isn't, again, 90, you know, 9% of police officers, I think are good people or want to believe, I want to believe that, you know, and, and I know it's definitely more, more than half and more than 70%, but there's going to be those bad things. And so instead of saying all police are bad or they all are good, it, it gets, we've got to get away from that either or thinking into that critical thinking piece again to say, all right, this is an issue. How, how do we hold one another accountable to, to really try to think creatively to, to make a better society, to make a better culture? We always get pulled back into what's easy. We always get pulled back into maybe what's worked before. Um, and so I think the challenge I have, and I'm, I'm curious, Ira, is how much does education play into this, this piece of critical thinking? Um, is it well, I, I will tell you uh, from my perspective, and again, uh, this is my uh, my implicit bias as I work in higher ed. Although I work in a very unique position within higher ed, in that I work in a, I teach in a career technical program. 
So my, my program is directly related to uh, contributing to people participating in our economic system and being, becoming productive uh, workers and, and business owners, et cetera. But I also bridge that gap with uh, liberal arts education where you see historically the, the teaching of um, critical thinking and creative thinking and information literacy and quantitative literacy. And, and these are the thinking, the metacognition skills necessary to become flexible and adaptable to changing technology, changing history, to be able to put things in perspective. And to, uh, I kept thinking, as you were talking recently here, I was kept thinking about, we haven't had a conversation about by what metrics do we determine what is success mm-hmm. in determining what is well-being for society. Yeah. Uh, and, and yet I can tell you uh, that we have some metrics that paint a pretty negative uh, picture. We have metrics to say that rates of incarceration are extremely high in this country compared to other parts of the world. We have metrics that say that we are not the happiest uh, country in the world and we are not the, uh, um, the most educated. Uh, we don't have the best health care. Mm-hmm. And yet we live and cling to this idea of we're the best country in the world, but we aren't using metrics to actually measure and assess it effectively uh, and we look at, you know, is individual um, wealth um, better at the consequence of having 90% plus in poverty? Uh, you know, the, 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 what is it, the top 1% control over 90% of the, the wealth of the country? It's is that a metric that, that yeah. is, is healthy for society? And, and so uh, the thing about metrics and the thing about you know, I'm, I'm going to use a uh, uh, the term evolution. Every generation is evolving into a different world. Uh, the world my father grew up in doesn't exist for him anymore, uh, and the world I grew grew up in is disappearing fast. And so our metrics need to evolve to take into consideration new variables. And, and that's where I, you know, to me, the solution to this is um, wisdom that is, is developed through compassion and developed through remaining inquisitive, even in the face of adversity, uh, which comes back to how am I responding to these difficult times? Uh, I've become, I've exercised my mind to find out what are some of the core issues associated with it. And hopefully I'm starting a conversation. Hopefully we're starting a conversation for people to start thinking about what are the metrics that we use to define success? uh, And what are the metrics that we use to define equity, not equality? And that's another interesting thing too, is this idea of uh, equity versus equality. Equality is everybody uh, has the same. Uh, But the reality is we know in this country and in every country really, um, when it comes to racism, when it comes to us and them, uh, we're not born with, we could have the same equality, but not, not have the same um, uh, position in social status and legal power. So equity is about bridging that uh, disparity. Uh, and I think we can do our own internal analysis of um, what is my role in my community? Am I, am I doing everything I can? And what's interesting about this, though, I will tell you one other really important thing. 
is that right now I have found the most important thing I could do is be willing to listen to hard conversations. And what I mean by that is um, last week, and it happened to be on my birthday, uh, I participated in a video meeting that had over 100 people. And the whole purpose of the meeting was for uh, my colleagues uh, of color to be able to express their experiences with racism in their life, in their everyday life. My job as a white male was to sit and listen and not interrupt, not try to even, like just to listen and just to sit with it. And that actually was hard work, but it was profound. And I think to just, um, and it goes back to, I think we had a conversation not too long ago about this idea of how support groups offer tremendous therapeutic benefit. And yet the primary activity is to sit back and listen and just be with one another. And so that's kind of the, the path I'm taking at the moment, uh, as well as trying to start meaningful conversations that are that are based in real metrics, real history, real uh, numbers uh, that challenge people's um, traditional stereotypical beliefs, uh, such as the second amendment. And, and, and you know, there's just, we, we do a whole nother episode and I'm not going to go there, but it just, what I'm finding is the more I dig in to find out the backstory of what this country's formation and its history uh, the more adept I feel I am to um, help respond in a way that can help challenge people's to move from their preconceived traditional notions into something more equitable. Mm-hmm. Was listening, as I said, I was listening to 60 Minutes the other day, and I'm going to forget what her role was, but she's so articulate. Um, Justice Defense Fund, or the she was the head of that um, Black American, African American, um, that just so articulate and kind of explaining some of those those very things that you're talking about about how um, we do fail to really hear one another. We we jump to our conclusions. It's like even even you and I have talked about how on this podcast, right? How do we make sure we're really listening to each other instead of always jumping to the next thing we need to say? I think there's a reason Jesus said so often, those who have ears to hear, let them listen. And thinking about what is that difference between just hearing and really listening. Um, I can hear the words, but if I'm not listening and paying attention, I'm, I'm going to miss the boat. But that articulation of we we keep we keep wanting to skip steps, and and she talks about is we just never do the work that we need to do um, in order to really deal with racism um, and really deal with the inequity that mm-hmm. that is that is there. Um, you know, and that's the same with, you know, I, I, I think I, I first became aware of that in the Native American populations, how, you know, because they were socialized in such a different way, it's been such a difficult thing for them to fit into our, you know, our 
white Anglo-Saxon American capitalistic culture. And without doing the deep listening, you know, there's reasons sweat lodges have, have a place and a huge history. It's, it, it allows, again, I think, for some of that critical thinking to take place, not only in this heavily educated, which, you know, I'm obviously, you know, you know, believe in education, but I think, I, I think I've, I want to be careful for myself to say, I also need to listen you know, to those, you know, 50 year old, non-college educated single moms. And, um, you know, that haven't had even gotten their high school education and what have they learned? What's their experience? And, and what do I need to learn from their experience? How do I listen to them as much as I listen to all the metrics that are, that are going on there? You know, it's, it's a both and, I mean, that's part of critical thinking also. Um, but well, I think we're all, I'm going to bring it circle back and kind of wrap up with this, this idea of calling mm-hmm. and that, uh, this always will come back to what is my calling and my calling is going to be very tied to not my well-being, not my well-being, but the well-being of others. And that, um, you know, I'm coming back to this, uh, also circling back this idea, it's not enough to be not racist, but actually need to be actively engaged in uh, anti-racism. And I start thinking about, well, what's my calling? Well, I'm an educator, I'm an artist, and those are my tools that I will use to try to um, encourage wisdom in our in our community at a time that's that's very hot heated uh debate and then the other thing i think about is um i want to uh, listen and figure out where i'm called to uh act and serve and be invited in uh to act and serve and i think of unique opportunities i've had over the last couple of years uh, where I've, I've been privileged to make powerful photographs of, um, um, people that are actively engaged in these issues. Uh, there's a poetry group called power to the poetry. Uh, and, uh, uh, the, uh, Bethany who started that group, uh, just showed up one day in my studio and, and she did this powerful rendition of a poem she wrote about black lives matter. And I'm just like, wow, what can I do to help you? And so I ended up doing some, some portraits for their group. And, and I think, you know, I'm not going to go out and and try to insert myself, but I'm going to listen and I'm going to be accepting of invitations where, where I'm, I I can fit in to help. And if I can't fit in to help, I can at least donate financially to organizations that are doing things. So uh, I do think of about the, um, Southern Poverty Law uh, um, group and, and the work they've done. And, yeah. and this is near and dear uh, to our hearts here in the Northwest because of uh, the, the history of, of uh, Aryan nations and, mm-hmm. and those sorts of things. So um, I guess that's where I'm leaving it for me today is, uh, you know, where do I go from here? And it's a, it's a very um, humbling, humbling time. What about you? Well, I think, I think for me, it's to not, well, to, I'll I'll put it in the positive, to speak, 
to use, you know, use the avenues that I have to speak what I think is the loving gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst, midst of a tumultuous time to say that there is always hope. And so in the midst of there always being hope, what does that mean? And it means for us as Christians, um, how, how, again, coming back to what you said earlier, how, how do we serve? What, what does that servant leadership really look like? I, there's a there's a cross in our church, Ira. You know that that hangs above the altar. It says I C X C Nike, um, basically from Nike. Jesus Christ conquers, and it's it's this stark reminder that Jesus Christ conquers through the ultimate sacrifice, through through a death on a cross. But it's it's power in weakness. And Jesus is always one that showing us it's never power over, but it's either power underneath or power with. Um, and so how do I find those avenues to, to think about, again, that relationship of power and, and where I uplift others in, in front of me um, and even instead of me at times as a person. So whether that's in, job searching, whether it's in, you know, whatever it may be, how, how do I understand that I do come from a place of privilege and how do I listen to where those places are all the more, even when it makes me uncomfortable because I need, I, you know, to use an old Gandhian phrase, you know, when he was challenged about thinking about, you know, what, what do you think of Jesus? He said, you know, I, I like Jesus but it's the Christians that I tend to have a problem with. And so as I continue to journey with Jesus, for now, I'm content to be restless. Well, our time for contentment needs to be done, unless if we make that being content to be restless. So that's where I hope to go with it. Well, thank you, my friend. This was uh, challenging, but uh, appreciate yeah. the conversation. It is, and it needs to be challenging for us, and that's, that's okay. If we're not wrestling with it, we're not listening. So, yeah. Thanks, Ira. All right. We'll see you. We'll see you next time. All right. Thank you for joining us today on The Spiritual Hedgehog. For show notes and more information, go to www.thespiritualhedgehog.com.